Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence. Alex Steele here, Paul Sweeney. We cover all the industries and all the analysis from our fabulous Bloomberg Intelligence arm of analysts. 2,000 companies, 130 industries, all around the world. And for that, we're going to focus on Paramount for a moment. That stock is down by about 4.5%. Um, the news is that they're letting go of hundreds of employees just after a amazing number of people watch the Super Bowl on all different platforms. There's only one person that you go to for this analysis. Geetha Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst on U.S. Media. Uh, Geetha, it's twofold, right? You have the layoffs, and then you also wind up having uh, this amazing streaming number. Um, walk us through your take. Yeah, I mean, this is really more, uh, of course, they did have a great uh, Super Bowl, uh, Alex, but I think this is really more about the future outlook for the company. And that is super, super bleak. Yes, it was great night for TV advertising. Uh, we think they got in uh, $700 million in roughly about four hours. But then it's more about the secular challenges. I mean, throughout 2023, we've seen TV advertising decline by low double digits it was down almost 13 percent uh, in the latest quarter that they reported and it's not going to get too much better and it's not just the challenges on the tv side of the equation for them it's also about their streaming business and they've made good strides absolutely in terms of you know streaming subscribers and again i i anticipate that they're going to have some good streaming numbers to report uh, thanks to the super bowl but it is burning a lot of money almost 1.7 billion dollars is what they will report in losses for 2024 um, for 2023 and before that they lost about 1.8 billion so it's just been a continuous drain on the company so geetha the stock is down over the trailing 12 months about 40 percent here um and i know there's a lot of talk around perhaps the controlling shareholder sherry redstone will consider selling all a part of the company what's the latest on that so the latest actually in that saga, and this has now been an ongoing drama for, for many months now, Paul, uh, the latest is that Byron Allen actually came up with a, a bid for all of the company, not just for the controlling stake held through National Amusements. And he actually put up a pretty good bid. Uh, you know, it was uh, $14 billion uh, in terms of equity, so $30 billion enterprise value. Uh, we think it was a pretty fair bid. The problem is, you know, Byron Allen, I don't think anybody is taking him too seriously. He's, you know, had this track record of kind of coming up with these empty bids. So while it is a number, uh, again, we've not really seen a whole lot of action that we would have expected. So this is a totally unfair question to Paul. Let's pretend you're still an M&A banker here, yeah. investment banker. What would you be talking to Paramount about? I would, I would say I think the best buyer here, there's a strategic buyer 
maybe Warner Brothers Discovery, but uh, both of those companies, as Geetha well knows, balance sheets are not great. I think I would be shopping it to a, a, a private equity because uh, uh. there's still good for, uh, free cash flows here and let them deal with it. So, Geetha, what, hmm. is, what is the sense here as, as to, I think about Paramount, I think about Warner Brothers Discovery. I don't know. I mean, what, are we, what is, happens to these companies? Because it just feels like, against some of the big tech companies, uh, you know, they're just not big enough here. And, you know, against Netflix, they're just not big enough. What do they do? So I think Warner Brothers Discovery actually had a pretty interesting move last week, Paul, which was they banded together with ESPN, Disney and, and Fox to kind of create this sports super app, which will launch uh, in the fall. And that's one way for them to kind of protect at least some part of their linear revenue stream, because I mean, they've kind of everybody's seeing the writing on the wall here. We're we're seeing cord cutting. We're seeing about 10% of the uh, pay TV subscriber base get eroded year after year. We've already lost 30 million subscribers. So that's one good way for them, I think, to kind of control their destiny a little bit uh, in terms of distribution. Again, remember, Paramount is not part of that bundle. So that, again, is a little bit of a, you know, a strike against them. Um, but 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 you know you bring up a good point i think at the end of the day we are going to have to see consolidation of course as you just pointed out there were rumors of actually warner brothers discovery being interested in paramount but you're right the market did not cheer for that that would be about more than you know 50, oh, 60 billion dollars i think in debt for those combined mm -hmm. companies so yeah it is it is definitely going to be challenging but i think consolidation is definitely on the cards okay so then how does that happen because if like three wrongs don't make a right and you're not going to put all the media companies together because that's going to create more problems so is it private equity like do you, do you split up different areas of media within the company yeah i think paramount i think one of the things has been you know to sell it for parts right there are some uh, parts of the company uh, the tv networks that could be very very attractive to private equity as, as you just pointed out because of the cash flows right it's still a business it used to throw out about six billion dollars in ebitda but it it will still throw out about four and a half to almost close to 4.8 billion dollars in ebitda so it, again cash highly cash generative of course the future you know flows don't look so great but then there have been a lot of uh, there has been a lot of interest in the studio part of the business, right? Whether that's you know David Ellison with his Skydance Media, maybe somebody else, maybe even an Apple. We haven't necessarily seen any of those you know bids kind of come to fruition. Uh, but there definitely will be a lot of interest. But I, I think the one thing that we kind of have to wait to get some clarity on is definitely the regulatory environment. We've seen big tech kind of really shy away from anything too splashy. Uh, but who knows, maybe when the government changes, all of that will change as well. You know, Geetha, when these uh, networks bid and pay billions of dollars for sports rights, and even if you, you know, you put up that $700 million of ad revenue that you referenced, you know, it's tough to make a, a, a profit on that kind of business. So what the networks have always said is, yes, but we promote other shows on our networks and that value is really worth paying these big rights fees. But if you're promoting all these shows on the CBS network that nobody's watching because of cord cutting, how valuable is that? <laughs> I mean, I, I thought about that. They're, they were promoting all their shows that I don't think anybody's watching because they've already cut the cord. Yeah, you're absolutely right. For them, though, uh, the one thing that Paramount has done really kind of well, and I don't know whether this is a plus or a minus, but it definitely helps them at least shore up, I think, the total value of their assets is they've actually all of their sports properties, including the NFL, they've actually kind of leaked it outside the bundle. So they were showing it on Paramount Plus day one. And they did the same thing with the Super Bowl uh, as well. So I think even if they're, you know, even if you have cord cutters, 
they could make the argument that yes, you know, people can potentially sign up for that service. We saw, of course, Peacock do that with that wildcard NFL game. Again, what they, they know that they're losing subscribers on the paid TV bundle, but so they're trying to they're trying their best. I don't know how successfully to kind of make it up uh, on the streaming side. But you're right. I mean, it is kind of a lose lose. But you know, for me, uh, I have become addicted to Survivor. <laughs> I've I've never seen it, and when I had a concussion. That was the show that I decided that I was going to watch. And now I'm paying like 25 bucks a season <laughs> to watch it on iTunes. And I'm like, this is getting ridiculous. That's what they got to do. They got to get people like me to then go pay for the streaming service because I'm like, wait a minute. I spent $100 on four seasons of Survivor. That would be a great promo. Survivor, preferred by more people with concussions. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But, I mean, I'm also like, wow, that's really expensive to to put out there. Um, Geetha, so what's next? Like, what are you watching uh, for Paramount now? For Paramount, it's definitely, it is an M&A place. Something has to happen. It has to happen fast. Bob Backish, the CEO, has pretty much said it. He, you know, he said he's evaluating uh, Byron Allen's uh, proposal Again, not sure whether that will necessarily pan out, but somebody has to come up with, with something, and, and it, it has to happen quickly. All right, Keitha, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Keitha Ranganathan, uh, she is the media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what you do with media in general. I mean, because I, I just don't, with the cord cutting and the switch to streaming, I don't know where the profits are going, and I don't know what multiple to put on, whatever profits the companies tell me they're going to have. And, and it's interesting when you're taking, I mean, I look at somebody like us, right? I mean, you started in a different world, but for me, like, I'm an on-air talent person. Like, yes. this is where I have yes. grown up over the last, you know, 20 years. What do you do if there's like a next phase? Like, where do you? Where is the media need going to be? Podcasts, right? But at some point, aren't we? <laughs> you laugh because we're, then we're going to the get biz. saturated, right? Then like all the money is going to go into one thing, and the pendulum switches back. However, I have been hearing about the death of linear TV for 20 years. Yes. So, and it's still kicking in some form or another. It is still it is still kicking. And we saw if you want to get a big, big, big audience, partner up with the NFL and do the Super Bowl thing. 125 million viewers. Probably if you're not an advertiser, that. what's that? I'm probably not you're doing probably that. You're yeah. probably not. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're an advertiser, you're like, there is no other place, full stop, where I can get that kind of reach. And $7 million at the end of the day doesn't seem like such a bad deal in a world where everybody's audience delivery has been diluted. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Again, the eco news of the day. Uh, CPI came in a little bit hotter than expected. We've got uh, yields higher. Uh, the 10-year Treasury is up about 9 basis points, 4.27%. The short end's up 12 basis points, 4.59%. Ira Jersey uh, joins us. Uh, thankfully, he is safe at his home office. He didn't trek that uh, three-minute drive to the Princeton office. So, uh, Ira, we're glad that you're working from home and you're safe and out there shoveling. What did you make of the CPI print? And more importantly, what do you think your friends at the Federal Reserve are going to say? Well, a couple of things. First, let me say uh, my school district, my daughter's school district does have a snow day today, so they are not learning online. Uh, Second, the hill in front of my house, I saw three cars slide down it because there's a sheet of ice under the snow. So uh, believe me, I'm glad I didn't go into the office today just because of the treachery of of getting there. Um, Yeah, today's CPI report obviously was uh, stronger than expected. And in particular, and I think this is something we've been harping on for a little while, it's that the services component, so that Mm -hmm. what they call super core inflation, 
population, so services excluding housing services, uh, grew at over six percent uh, on a year-on-year basis, and that's you know that that's really the component that is really driving the fact the fact that inflation is finding it very difficult to come down as quickly as I think some people had hoped, and you know sir, we've priced out basically not quite a whole nother uh, cut, but we've priced out a a large portion of another cut this year and 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 we're getting now toward the the idea that maybe the Fed is actually only going to cut three times this year which is what they've been saying right. um, there's still a lot of people and and I was talking to some investors this morning who are thinking well why is the Fed going to cut at all if inflation keeps coming in like this and I think that that's a reasonable question to be asking is you know is the Fed ever going to cut now I think that they probably will cut at least one time before mid-year because if they don't it'll be politically difficult for them to cut in say September right during the election cycle uh just because you know they don't want to be seen as being political and um and i think that they want to get at least one out of the way that way they can say well you know if we cut again it's not it's not something that they haven't done already so last week i was on tv and i brought up the risk of inflation reaccelerating, and i was almost kind of laughed offset a little bit by the guest <laughs> um do, how how much do we have to worry about a reacceleration? There is no hedging against, say, another hike. Like there is no hedging against a reacceleration necessarily. Do we need to start? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting point. So so I think there's a couple of things. One is when you look at the composition of inflation, it's not that inflation has reaccelerated. I think you know some people have said that to me. It's just that it didn't come down as the market expected. It's basically flat month on month, more or less. Um, the 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 issue I think with with a uh, the potential of another hike is that you'd really need to see a meaningful acceleration in, in goods prices, and goods prices continue to fall um, at least at least very slightly. So so the question is if we do see like supply chain issues or something like that that forces goods prices to to increase another you know even if it's just a little bit like another percent or something like that that will increase all of uh all of cpi a little bit and that would you know certainly keep the fed on the sidelines um you know whether or not they hike i think you'd need to see a string of that kind of reacceleration and it seemed that that would be the trend in in, in order for the fed to hike again but again like we have to first price out all the cuts that are still being priced keep in mind we're still pricing for the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates 200 basis points over the next year and a half. So let we have to price that out first before we start talking about uh, talking about the market pricing and hikes. So when you talk to traders here, uh, Ira, what are they doing here? I mean, it looks like they're, I mean, today uh, yields are up 12 basis points on the two year. Are people trading off of this? Are they investing off of this number or do, or do they trade off of this number? Well, so, so investors in, in aggregate it seem to have been more or less flat to slightly underweight duration. So that, that means that they're basically short interest rate risk, which which is means that they did pretty well today, right? With with ten year yields up about nine basis points right now. Um, the uh, p people had gotten long uh, interest rates, and and then they, they started to cut those when we got under four percent. So so I think things are a little bit more balanced now. I haven't talked to a lot of like traders, like high frequency traders, but the investors that I've talked to over the last couple of days certainly are, um, you know, a little bit. They're looking for an entry point to to get long rates at least a little bit. Um, you know, they didn't like rates at three eighty. You know, will they like rates at two and a quarter? At four and a quarter? Not sure. Um, but there there certainly is. 
is some appetite for people maybe to, uh, you know, shorts to cover and to get flat duration, uh, for example, and, and that could be coming. And there definitely is demand. You, you look at the auctions last week and, you know, you guys you guys have been really in front of the, the coverage on some of the auctions, uh, on the treasury auctions. They were really good. So there is primary demand, right? Investors still want to be uh, own treasuries. The question is, you know, how much do they want to own vis-a-vis -vis the, um, the, the amount of supply coming out outstanding? And, and it seems, you know, at least today, you know, everyone was surprised by this. Last thing that I have to say, most of this move, uh, or at least half of the move in uh, in treasuries today comes from inflation break-evens. So this is the first time in the last six months or so that we've really seen uh, inflation expectations move up significantly higher uh, than they were. So so that that's something to keep an eye on today, too. So it, that explains, and obviously also the short end is getting hit, too. But I got to say... When the numbers came out, I was like, ooh, okay, let's look at this 20 basis point move, 25 basis point move we're going to see. And it's only 12. I feel like <laughs> this feels orderly uh, and to some extent. Um, and is that because of those buyers that you're talking about or is it a position thing? Well, keep in mind, keep in mind, Alex. You know, we we've priced out 36 basis points of uh, of cuts just in the last week. So, so we we had been selling off going into today's number. So, so I think part of it was people, you know, again, position squaring, people getting you know flatter the market. Um, so, you know, you didn't need to see a, a, a necessarily a 20 basis point sell off. Real yields are are probably you know reasonably close to fair value right here. So, when I say real yields, I mean the yields on tips on Treasury inflation protected securities. Um, and and I've been saying, and Paul, I, I I know I've mentioned this to you uh, a number of times over the past couple of months. Is I think that inflation expectations, so inflation break-evens, are habitually uh, a bit too low, and and I think that those do need to kind of recalibrate to the idea that hey, maybe we'll have three percent inflation for a long period of time instead of inflation continuing to come down toward two percent like the market's currently pricing. Yep, very good. We've heard that uh, from you before. We appreciate uh, getting your thoughts here today. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, giving us some thoughts on the CPI data. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Market selling off today. CPI print came in a little bit hotter than expected. So if you were in the camp saying, I think the Fed's going to cut sooner rather than later. Probably uh, today's not your day here. Uh, let's check in uh, with somebody who does this stuff for a living, uh, Jeffrey Cleveland. He's a chief economist at Payton and Regal, joining us uh, on Zoom from Los Angeles. So, Jeff, you know, I, is this a bump in the road for the dovish Fed folks, or is this something more on the inflation front? I think it's probably something more. I mean, this is uh, pretty disappointing if you thought the Fed was going to cut and March or or even May uh, really disrupts the trend. Um, so whether you look at core CPI up 0.4% month to month, or you know as the policymakers have counseled us, we've been looking at core services X shelter. You know that was up 0.9% um, month to month in January, the highest print in over two years. 
So that's um, there's some inflation pressure still in the economy. So I think this really should dampen expectations for for cuts. Jeffrey, maybe what we're learning though is that inflation is just lumpy. That it's it's just going to be hard. It's not going to be a straight line down for disinflation, but it'll be sort of a volatile, evolving target. How as an economist do you kind of factor that in? Yeah, so I mean, it's possible that January has uh, has some noise. I think we saw that to pre two thousand and eight. If you go back to that era, you would often see Januarys where you'd see some price increase. So maybe that's what we saw also last January, January of, of twenty three. So it, it's I don't want to over um, overweight or over index to this particular number. Um, so there, I think that's important to keep in in touch. Uh, it you know in mind. It's possible by the time we get to summer. That core CPI will, you know, have cooled off a bit, and but, but I guess at that point you're still going to have three percent plus year on year uh, core CPI. So maybe something like three point four or three point five. Is that enough, or is that cool enough to justify rate cuts? I don't know. That's going to be a, a, a tough question. So I think that you, know, you month to month you could be lumpy, you could have noise, but it's a question of okay, where are we going to be by mid year? Even in the best case scenario, it seems like we're we're three percent plus on core CPI at, at mid year. Jeffrey, Doesn't what are you guys really at Payne Reed calling for rate cuts? Yeah, hey, yes, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. Just wondering what you guys are thinking about in terms of kind of uh, GDP for the U.S. in twenty twenty four here. I mean, how measured is it going to be? Well, we're pretty bullish actually. I okay. think, but compared to compared to the Bloomberg consensus, right now we have a two percent GDP growth for twenty twenty four. I think the Bloomberg consensus last time I looked was closer to one one point one percent. So that is powered you know, primarily by the consumer. So we're still pretty uh, upbeat at Payton uh, about the health of the consumer, the strength of the labor market, um, the growth in consumer income has been really really key. I think that's why. A lot of forecasters maybe were too bearish in the last 12 to 18 months. They just not seen that the consumer income growth was continuing. So uh, pretty upbeat on, on the growth uh, prospects for the U.S. economy, at least. What I love when we were just talking about inflation, though, is that you sound like you're trying to work it out just like we are. Um, and I think <laughs> that that like, says a lot about how hard it is to probably be an economist right now because some things just don't make consistent sense. Uh, so. How do you then model out if you take into the growth that Paul was talking about and the inflation confusion when the Fed cuts and what that cutting cycle looks like? And if it's a normalization versus, oh, gosh, growth is terrible. It's a recession. We have to cut now. Yeah, it's not it's not that difficult. I mean, so we look at what the market is pricing. And if you go back a few weeks, months, the market we thought had too many rate cuts priced in. Why did we think that? Well, because we thought growth would come in better than the market has anticipated. We thought you could have some, uh, you know, lumpy inflation as as we've seen this morning. So we had we had fewer rate cuts uh, penciled in. And what we found over the years is, you know, this happens from time to time. But the the bond market just gets ahead of itself, where it has too many cuts priced in, and then uh, we can take advantage of that in, in portfolios by positioning um, a little bit more uh, conservatively. So you, we weren't adding uh, to in, to duration on expecting that rates were gonna rally here. So that, that that's it's that's kind of how we we process this information. Jeffrey, how do you feel about the the uh, the labor market here? That's been one strong part of this economy from the, the get-go here. Um, is, is it still as strong as it seems? Yeah, in fact, it looks like it's picked up in the last um, 
three months. If you look at the three month moving average of non-farm payroll growth, it was as of January, 289,000. I mean, that's excellent, Paul. I mean, like the, the way to think about that for me is just, we need about 105,000 jobs every month to keep the unemployment rate at where it is. So if you're growing at 289,000, uh, you, that's a that's a pretty good labor market. That's a pretty strong labor market. So think, things look look solid. We're looking at real time, looking for signs of layoffs. I mean, we're seeing it anecdotally. Talking to clients in tech, we're seeing it there, but we're not seeing broad based layoffs, at least not yet. So the labor market looks solid in my view. Solid labor market, gross okay, inflation a little lumpy, sticky, but yep. sticky, but it's all right. Is the <laughs> yep. Fed fueling this? Like, is the Fed cutting cycle that we're anticipating and the looser financial conditions that have ha already happened, is that fueling any of this? Well, I think the, the Fed has been pretty clear, like, hey, we, we think if things progress, if we continue to see broad-based inflation, uh, you know, on target month-to-month -month inflation, we could later this year, we could reduce our policy rate. That's what they're saying. The bond market is is the problem. It gets ahead of itself saying, oh, yeah, I mean, they're they're going to be cutting six or seven times. That was the probably the easing of financial conditions. I, I don't really blame the Fed for that. When I listen to Chair Powell, when I listen to Christopher Waller, I, I think I've heard a really measured uh, story, which is, hey, this is not a slam dunk. It's we're, we're not declaring victory. We'll see how things progress over the next uh, few months. It was the bond market, it was bond trade. I play bond, bond trade. Bond it's Ira Jersey's <laughs> fault. <laughs> yes. It's all that it's guy. Someone else. I know, it's, I don't even, uh, I don't want to name particular names. No, I'm kidding, I I'm that, kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeffrey Cleveland, uh, Chief Economist over at Payton and Regal. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Because it's me, now I'm going to make Paul talk about natural gas. Yes. Uh, so um, Williams is one of the largest natural gas pipeline movers, well, oil and natural gas. It's a midstream company. That means the pipes, it moves the stuff. It's one of the biggest in the entire country. Alan Armstrong is president and CEO. Williams reports tomorrow. So we're not going to ask him about earnings, but we can go macro with the stock up about 8.5% over the last year. Alan, you're in D.C. What, what are you doing in D.C.? Yeah, Alex, good morning and uh, great to speak with you as always. Uh, we are in D.C. because we have a combination of both our analyst day that we'll do uh, tomorrow, as well as today we're doing a clean energy expo, and we've got a collection of regulators, uh, legislators uh, here with us, as well as a lot of the startups that are in the technology business associated with reducing emissions in and around our business. And so we're really trying to demonstrate all that we are accomplishing in terms of reducing, reducing emissions around our business and kind of the power of natural gas in its ability to reduce emissions around the world. So mm -hmm. it's a great opportunity to bring. We've got parties from both sides of the aisle um, here with us and, and a lot of the uh, regulators and agencies that we engage with on the energy front as well with us. So, Alan, I know from just going back and forth with your company that this was on the schedule before the Biden administration put a moratorium on LNG exports to non-FTA uh, countries in terms of new approval for projects. It, how is this playing into the conversation? They say it's, a, it's an environmental impact, right? 
you're exactly talking about the environmental impact. What's the convo? Yeah, you know, we, uh, we, we are certainly trying to draw awareness of, of all that the U.S. has to offer. I think a lot of people forget that the number one reason that we were able to uh, meet our Paris Climate Accord here in the U.S. was on the backs of natural gas. And, and we want to bring awareness to that. But we also want to show, you know, one of the things that we hear from what I would say is the serious environmental opposition is the concern around fugitive methane emissions. And that goes for LNG as well. And, you know, really, it's not that difficult to reduce fugitive methane emissions uh, from our industry. And we're doing that with some great new technologies as well. So it's really a combination of those things. But, but LNG really is such a powerful tool that the U.S. really needs to unleash. I think we see it as a very unfortunate political move that really does stand in the way of progress of the U.S. being a, a bigger and bigger player in redu helping reduce emissions around the world. Um, hopefully that's all it is, is a, is a political move, but it, it's difficult to convince our, uh, our customers around the world and consumers around the world to make long-term obligations to LNG. You, can't, you don't just decide one year to use LNG and the next year to go back to coal. You have to make big long-term obligations um, on the capital side to use LNG. And so it is pretty damning when our administration uh, makes it unclear about whether or not we really are serious about continuing to provide our allies with natural gas around the world. So, Alan, un unlike uh, Alex, I am I am not an expert on energy, but my layperson understanding is, you know, natural gas versus coal versus burning oil, that's a pretty good trade anywhere. So what is the, I guess, the, the, the opposition? What are some of the key arguments for the opposition to LNG? Yeah, you know, the two primary arguments have been out there is one is fugitive methane emissions. And the second is uh, what people perceive to be stranded assets, assuming that down the road we come up with uh, lower cost, better technologies um, as a way to, uh, to replace spinning reserve power generation capacity around the world and things like steel making, fertilizer, all the things that we use natural gas for. So to the degree that we come up with a better solution, people are concerned that, wow, why are we spending all this capital on this now when we're going to come up with better technology? But, but here's, the, here's the struggle with that second argument. In 22 and again in 23, we hit record levels of coal consumption around the world. Here in the U.S., uh, gas is, uh, or sorry, coal is 2.3 times more CO2 emissions than natural gas. So, but the, but the first issue I mentioned was fugitive methane emissions and the IEA. So this isn't, this isn't the US government, this is the IEA, the International Energy Administration, just came out with uh, their fugitive methane or their methane emissions report for 22. It takes a long time to compile all that information. But in 22, natural gas was only 6% of the total methane emissions throughout the world coal was 7% and, and uh, oil was 8%. So even when it is the product we're moving, uh, primarily natural gas, methane is mm -hmm. primarily uh, natural gas, even with that, we're still the lowest amongst the fossil fuels of fugitive methane emissions. And in, and in total, 
only 21% of the total methane emissions around the world are coming from fossil fuels. So we, we are doing a lot to reduce mm -hmm. methane emissions. Uh, great players like Chenier on the uh, LNG front and like uh, EQT on the natural gas production front are making huge strides in reducing emissions around fugitive methane emissions. So it's not rocket science. It's not that hard to reduce fugitive methane emissions. And we're taking right. it down very rapidly across the industry. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So if I also just look at the idea, and, and I realize your, your pipeline, right, but just in terms of the export issue, it is hard to think about why would I approve a project now that will be there for decades when in theory in decades we should be all using solar and wind. What's the argument against that? Yeah, great question, Alex. Well, first of all, you know, we have to have backup to, um, to our renewable power. We don't have that today. Uh, the reserve capacity available uh, from, uh, from wind is 10 to 30%. In other words, you can only count on 10 to 30% of that capacity. And as we all know, there are plenty of times, um, obviously when the sun isn't shining, but there's also a lot of times when the wind isn't blowing and there's longer periods of time. So we're talking about batteries today that are four hours. Um, and frankly, we just don't have the materials to be able to even build out that. Mm -hmm. But four hours is not anything I think people want to depend on that the wind's going to start blowing again. In and even for hours. the next so 40 we, years, Alan, like in 40 yeah, years, even, same problem. Even for the, listen, if we come up with a better solution, fantastic. Like these are commercial these are commercial contracts that are being made. It's not like the government or the public is the one that is stranding the assets here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are private investments. They're not subsidized investments. And so if we're wrong about that and we come up with solutions that are affordable um, and cleaner, then great. We'll, we'll move ahead as a society and we'll move on. But, but to deny the ability to reduce emissions right here, right now, while we continue to grow coal use around the world. And the U.S. is the is and can be the low cost exporter of natural gas around the world really just doesn't make any sense because it mm -hmm. is right. We, we continuing to grow emissions around the world, unfortunately. Yeah. And coal generation is one of the primary reasons. And so we're not against coming up. In fact, we're investing in all kinds of new technologies ourselves, mm -hmm. but they're not there today at scale to reduce emissions the way that natural gas can reduce emissions. Alan, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a really busy day for you. Uh, I think energy literacy is so important. So thank you so much. Alan Armstrong, president and CEO of Williams. Also, we'll get you back uh, after your earnings. Um, and this is kind of the, the point, Paul, is that everyone can be right. We don't. I don't understand why this issue becomes so black and white sometimes, because it's very difficult. This is going to be very difficult. And you look at a country like India, right? You're going to put a bunch of solar panels. Like, I mean, uh, how, how are you going to power that country? Coal, right? So what are different options aside from coal? Having that conversation is quite interesting.
This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.